God in his own words, in his own handwriting says, do not make a carved image of me. I don't look like anything in the sea. I don't look like anything in the sky. Don't do it. Why? No matter how much time and effort you pour into the image in which you think God is, it is far beyond anything that we can comprehend. Therefore, it robs God of glory. Welcome to Refuge Podcast, a weekly Bible study for young adults at Calvary Chapel, San Juan Capistrano. Okay, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. You guys might hear little little noises, like little shouts of jubilee and, and joy. That's little Zoe over there. Say hi to Zoe. Everyone say hi, Zoe. (laughs) So, (laughs) on cue, that was like, oh, man. So you may hear her just, you know, agreeing in the spirit and uh, little shouts of jubilee and also cries of jubilee. And uh, so don't worry about it. Just, Just go with it. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we're going to pick up where we left off in uh, verse 14. Lord, we're so grateful to be in your house and, um, Lord, to be reminded of, of your promises towards us, Lord. And God, I'm so thankful that you don't want anything from us. Lord, you just want to be with us. And so, Lord, we, we pray right now that you just settle our hearts. You'd settle our minds, Lord, that... Um, God, you bring peace in this room. And uh, Lord, whatever has, has made its way in here, God, we pray that if it's not of you, it, would, it wouldn't be here. Jesus, we pray that you be glorified, you be honored this evening uh, by the teaching of your word. God, we pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to our hearts in the way that we need it. Um, and we're, we're so thankful, God, that all of us are in different places and coming from different backgrounds. Um, but Lord, we all have one common need and that is we need Jesus, and we need your spirit. And so, Lord, we pray that you would grant us that request, Lord. Would you bless us with your presence and draw us in, draw us close to you. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, um, this is when, as we come to this text in verse 14, we, we kind of covered the first half of the chapter last week, but this is when Paul finally concludes his answer of personal freedom and liberty whether it's loving your brother or, or experiencing liberty in the sense that you have the right to do what you want to do. Um, this actually began at the beginning of chapter 8. Chapter 8 starts with the Apostle Paul saying, Now concerning the things uh, offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And that begins this kind of um, this approach to, to answering their questions. <laughs> That's how I feel inside. (laughs) Um, But anyway, um, he began by telling us in in chapter 8 that we should always choose fellowship with each other and consider your walk with Jesus or their walk with Jesus before your own liberty. And Paul uses his own life. He uses lessons from the Old Testament as warnings, examples, and imprints for us to learn from and to follow. And so he's answering these questions. 
He starts in chapter 8 to answer a question. We have this parenthetical statement that happens in chapter 9 where we went through like the whole Old Testament and you guys were, you suffered through that. You made it. You were like, why should I care? And at the end of it, Paul just brings it all together and we were all, we all got saved and baptized in the Spirit. No, but um, this is a continuation of that conversation. And so verse 14 begins with, the exhortation, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Now, therefore, whenever we read it in our Bible, we always ask, what is it there for, right? If you're a Bible student, you always want to ask, what does this entail? It always points us back to the context. It, it always takes our thoughts back to what we've heard. And what he told us is, looking at these Old Testament pictures in which he describes the cloud and, and the nation of Israel walking through the Red Sea, and he, he relates it to baptism and communion, and, and I don't want to teach the whole study we did last week, but he takes all of these things and he says, these are examples for us. They're written for our admonition. They're written for us to learn from their life and to understand that none of us are at a place where temptation doesn't affect us. Can everyone attest to that? Like, there's no one in this room who's like, nope, not tempted anymore. I'm 19 now, and so that stopped. Like, that, I don't think so. Or like, I'm married now, so I'm never tempted anymore because I've reached this pinnacle of holy marriage. Like, it does, you, everyone's tempted. And he says, temptation is actually common. Like, every temptation is common. The same temptation that you're going through is a temptation that I've either gone through or I'm currently going through myself as well. Like, if you're going through temptation, we're all going through temptation. We're tempted, you're tempted. We're all tempted, is what Paul's saying. But the only one that's overcome us is that which is common to man. And he says to, to the people that he's talking to, he says, be careful or be aware and thinking that you're strong enough to overcome temptation. If you think you're strong, you better, you know, check yourself before you wreck yourself. Like in, in so many words, that's what he's saying. Like, understand that if you're like, man, I'm so tempted, I, I can't get past this. Paul says, listen, God is always providing always provides a way of escape. There's always a, uh, that provision. There's always an exit sign. So if you're being tempted and you're like, I have no control. I can't get out of this. There's no way. Paul says, that's not true. It's not true. That's a lie from the devil that gives us tunnel vision that says like, there's no way out of this. This is how my life is always going to be. I'm always caught in this temptation. I always give into it. I'm always conquered by it. Paul says, that's not your reality anymore. You're a new creation in Christ. You don't have to do these things anymore. Like, you have this wonderful word, is the word no, you know? As much as you said yes to give towards this temptation, you've been given the gift of no. No. You know, you can tell the devil, like, no, I don't have to do that. And you have the power, the Bible tells us that when you come to Christ, you have the power now over sin. Like, Christ has conquered it, and through him we have power over that. And so the, the exit sign that Paul says is, therefore, run. Like, run for your life, you know? Like, treat sin in such a way that it's something that's like a transverse Rex, and you're in a really 1980s Jeep, and you're like, run, Jurassic Park. Anyway, um, there's like this mentality of like, this is a dangerous thing. But what he encourages us to flee from is something that seems like an unnecessary sign or an unnecessary warning. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. We're going to get to the idolatry part in a second. But we want to concentrate just for a minute on that word, my beloved. Now, if you are a fan of James, if you're, if you're a fan of McGee, then you know what I'm talking about, my beloved. 
And he talks like, <laughs> he talks like he's got thick molasses dripping out of his mouth, my beloved. And he just, he says that with such as my beloved. But um, for a second here, that word my beloved, Paul esteems them. It means my favorite. It means worthy of love, my beloved. And what I love about the Apostle Paul, as gnarly as this book, this book is of a rebuke of like, hey, you guys are living in sin and like stop. And, and you're actually going the way of the devil and you're actually like doing things that are horrible and going to lead you to hell. And he's, he's very upfront about what he's, he's saying. The Apostle Paul loved these people. He loved these people. In 2 Corinthians, he talks about how, he, how even the more that he loved them, it says that the more they hated him for it. And like the more they were like, how dare you, Paul, love me like that. And he's, but what I love about the Apostle Paul, and, and I think it's an example for us, and, and it's an example of Jesus ultimately, that the Apostle Paul loved people enough to bear with them. That he, he bore with them, meaning he didn't just cut and run when things got weird or things got difficult or things got uncomfortable. Paul was willing to stand in the gap and have awkward conversations. If there's anything that, that I avoid more in my life, it's awkward conversations. Even when my order is wrong, I will avoid the awkward conversation and I will eat the thing that I didn't want to eat in the first place because I don't want to have that awkward conversation. Like, this isn't what I ordered. And there's a little too much foam in my latte. Like, we didn't answer, or I don't want to have that conversation. Paul the Apostle said, no, because I love you, I'm willing to bear with you and bear with your stupid decisions. Do you, do you see, like, the picture of friendship in that? What a picture of friendship and love. And ultimately, Jesus is the, the vision of that. Twelve guys that did some really dumb things, and Jesus just lovingly walked for three years with them graciously, mercifully, drawing them in and pointing them to Jesus. Paul loved these people enough to bear with them, to rebuke them, to consistently and constantly encourage them. He was involved in their life. He was involved enough and loved them enough to warn them of things that were to come. Now, here Paul warns, he's warning uh, to us as well as to the church there in Corinth to flee idolatry. Now, there was... A god, and many gods that they worshipped at that time, there was a, a god named Bacchus. It was the god of like wine and fertility and basically partying was the god that they worshipped. And so the church would enter into the, the, the temple or, or like these places where um, Bacchus would be worshipped. And so they'd go out for a meal. Usually they'd be like, what's up Bacchus? Thank you for this steak. And they would eat. Part of the meal and part of the celebration was in worship to this false god. And then they would go to their gathering of believers and they would take communion. And they're like, "Woo, I'm still pretty full from all the Bacchus meat. And so there was this like real awkward like conversation of like you're giving into the things of the world and to this awful God and, and you're in this, this mode of idolatry and still a part of that. And they're like, hey, I have liberty. I have freedom in Christ. I can eat whatever meat I want. We know that these things don't exist, right? And this is the conversation that Paul's addressing now. But he warns us, as well as, the, as this church, about idolatry. Now, when you read the Bible, we never want it to be pushed away. Like in the sense that this letter is not for me and this isn't written for me. The Bible, although we need to consider it in its context, in its cultural context in which it is written, we also need to read it in the sense that God is a personal God who wants to speak to us and reveal himself through his word 
about himself to us, okay? So when it talks about idolatry, it seems like a warning that seems unnecessary. Now, I looked up some unnecessary warnings. We live in a culture that is obsessed with safety. Obsessed with safety, right? Zoe knows. We're obsessed. Like everything on her cart, like little stroller, everything that she has over there has a warning label on it. And I just when on your way out tonight, take a peek at how many warning labels are all over her stuff. There's just everything. Warning. This may cause. Because we're obsessed with safety. You go to another country and you're like, I'm going to go bungee jumping. They're not obsessed with safety. They hook your legs to a rubber band. They push you off a bridge. And they're like, ha, ha, ha. And you don't even know what they're saying. You don't even speak their same language. We were in Israel on this boat, like going out to the Sea of Galilee. The boat didn't have seats. Okay? There's no seats on this barge with walls. They take you out on the Sea of Galilee. There's no instructions. There's no safety talk, right? Here they're like, <laughs> in case of a, a rabid dog case, like this is what we do. And like everything has it because everyone sues everyone. In Israel, not so much. They go out into this, to this lake, this huge lake, and a storm kicks up on the Sea of Galilee while we're on the Sea of Galilee. Mind you, the boat is rocking. No seats, no seat belts, no life jackets. And all of a sudden, the radio kicks on, and we're thinking, okay, the guy's going to tell us what to do. They just play music. <laughs> just like Israeli music. And we're like, oh, no, 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 no. And the boat, like, everyone's sliding, and the guy's just like, Yeah! We live in a safety-obsessed culture. Now, there are warning signs that seem a little, like, unnecessary. There was one that said, do not hold wrong side of chainsaw. <laughs> Thank you for the warning. Like, I think I could have figured that one out. Uh, this one was really funny, I thought. Warning, this wall is made of brick. Punching it may cause serious hand injury. It's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Warning. This one was really good. You had to see it. I'm going to try and paint the picture for you. There's a guy on a tractor, and it has a big, like, cross-out red sign with a kid underneath it. And it says, warning, where are your kids? <laughs> that was funny. I don't care who you are. That's funny. Okay. So when Paul warns us of idolatry, is it really something that we need to be warned about? We don't have like pagan temples or things that we go to worship to in, in that sense. There's no Bacchus temple that we go to anymore. There's no temple of Diana that we go and worship at. But what is, I think the question is, what is idolatry first? Because if this is a warning for the church in, in that time, it's also a warning for the church today. So what is idolatry? Number one, if you're taking notes, if you're not, just pretend like you care. Number one, idolatry, it's changing God. Simple as that. It is to change God. In Exodus chapter 20, if you read the Ten Commandments, it says this, number one and two, it says, you must not have any other God but me. And this is the, the second one. You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or any image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. You must not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am jealous, a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other God. Do you catch the first two? Like, okay, there's no other God. Like, you will have no other God before me. Commandment number one. Number two, 
do not try and make an image of what I look like, right? We use anthropomorphic talk when we talk about God's hand, God's eyes, God's ears. The Bible tells us that God is spirit. So when we use these terms of hands and, and eyes and things like that, that God sees us and that God extends his hand, he lends his ear, this is humans trying to use anthropomorphic talk to ascribe to a God that is spirit in order that we would understand the way that God relates to us. Now, does God have an ear? And he's like, <laughs> never mind. Not necessarily. God is spirit. But this, is, this was the command of God, not to make an image of him, no matter, and, and here's the thing, a lot of you are artistic, you are gifted, and, and you might fashion some kind of image of what you think in your mind's eye God looks like, and the Bible says, do not do that. God in his own words, in his own handwriting says, do not make a carved image of me. I don't look like anything in the sea, I don't look like anything in the sky, don't do it. Why? Because no matter how creative, no matter how wonderful, no matter how gifted you are, you are nowhere near the glory of God. No matter how much time and effort you pour into the image in which you think God is, it is far beyond anything that we can comprehend. Therefore, it robs God of glory. That's why. That's idolatry. It robs, first of all, changing God robs God of who he is. You may have the ability to communicate through a medium something beautiful, and God says don't do that. Because God revealed himself in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. In man not understanding, what was the first like major, I mean there's a lot of sins, but one of the things that Israel did and plagued them throughout their history is that they made an image of God. It wasn't that they were worshiping a false God, is that they ascribed all of the attributes, the power, everything that God ever did in bringing them out of Egypt into a golden calf. That they minimized the almighty God, all-powerful God, omnipotent, omnipresent, omnipotent God into a golden calf. And God says, you rob me. It's interesting that Philippians says, Paul said to the church in, in Philippi, in chapter 2, verse, verse 6, he's speaking of Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Interesting he uses that word robbery. Because Jesus, coming in the form of God, he did not rob God of anything. He did not rob God of anything in his omniscience, omnipotence, or omnipotence, however you want to say it, however you want to put the emphasis on what syllable, you know, however you want to say that, if we want to know, listen, if you want to know what God is like, we are to look at the pages of our Bible and the person of Jesus Christ. Therefore, to create an image in my mind of what God is and the way that God would act devoid of scripture is idolatry. And listen, that is happening today. Many churches, many preachers, many people are saying that God does this when his word says the opposite. It doesn't matter. How many of you have ever heard that? Like, I, <laughs> sorry, hold on. How many of you have ever heard, like, you're reading a verse and someone says, well, this verse means to me, right? 
Do you know that it doesn't matter what it means to you? It doesn't matter. The, the, the Bible has a certain meaning. It has one interpretation to it. There's one correct interpretation. If I read, you know, this thing about head coverings, and I'm like, what it means to me is that all of us need to wear little head coverings in this room. Amen. <laughs> Do you know what that means? It means I'm wrong. Like, it doesn't matter what I think it means. I don't, it doesn't matter. There's an interpretation. There are many applications to God's word. Like, I can teach this, this chapter, and someone can come along and teach it much better, and he can come up with a different application. But guess what? We must have the same interpretation because Scripture says what it says. It does not matter what you think or how you feel. What it says is what it says. And idolatry is to make Scripture or to make God into something that I want him to be, and he's not. Doctrine matters. It matters. Like we need to know who God is. And the way that we do that, it is revealed to us through scripture. Know the Bible, like know what it says, because there's a lot of weird stuff that you can Google, right? We live in a, in a <laughs> we live in a time of like Google theology and YouTube theology. And there's some real bonkers, like crazy stuff, but it's always been that way. It's just more readily available to us. There's always been weird offshoots to who God is. And this is why God says, if it's not what I have said of myself, and it's not revealed in the person of Jesus Christ, then it's not him. It's not him. And we need to beware of idolatry. And we need to run from it. Like, that's his escape route. He's not like, <laughs> never mind. This is what reveals God's character, his nature, his power. It's revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus never took or robbed anything from God. Number two is that idolatry is leaving God's way for our own way. And this is why Paul says, flee temptation. Temptation is the devil coming along and trying to coax you out of God's boundary. Like he's trying to say, come, come over to this side. You see the line that God has drawn. I want you to cross that line. Like I, I know what God has said, but this is what I want you to do. And, and why don't you, and he'll reason with you. He'll, call, he'll, he'll reason with you in your own voice, it seems like. But it reminds me of a story in 1 Samuel chapter 15. Saul is called upon, he's king over Israel. He's called upon by the Lord to go and deal with the people of Israel. Amalek or the Amalekites and it says in 1 Samuel 15 thus says the Lord of hosts I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them but kill all like destroy all burn all right right there's this a one word that we all need to key on what did God say for Saul to do to destroy how much all. That is the key word. Okay? There, there is a direction. There is a command. There, there is a, a way that you could obey that and not obey that. Correct? The correct thing would be to all would be destroyed. And out of every battle, this was like one of the only ones that God said not to take any of the spoil. Like it needs to all be destroyed. Now, move down in that chapter. It says, and Saul attacked the Amalekites. So he he did what God told him to do. From Havilah all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt, he took, 
King Agag of the Amalekites alive, and he utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag, the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were unwilling to utterly destroy them. But everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. Do you see what just happened there? What did God say? Destroy? Did Saul destroy all? Yeah, that rhymes. No, he did not. Saul did not destroy all. Saul decided that what God had called him to do and what God had called despised shouldn't be destroyed. Saul deemed it worthy and good. Everything else is like worthless and didn't benefit him. He's like, yeah, go ahead and we'll destroy that. But this is good stuff here. We shouldn't destroy that. This is what the devil does. He tempts us outside of God's boundary to which God said all of this is off limits. This is the boundary. And the devil says, I want you to come outside of that boundary. He did the same thing to Eve, right? Remember when Eve, she's in the garden and the snake starts talking to her. Should have like tipped her off to something bad happening that a snake is talking to you. But as the, the serpent begins to reason with her, he says, he, he says to her, did God really say? And he begins to cause her to doubt God's word. But as she doubts God's word, she then adds to God's word. God said, the day that you eat of it, you shall not eat of this fruit. The day that you do, you'll die. When the Satan tempts her and says, you, why not? This, it's good for food. It's, God want, he doesn't want you to be like him. She says, God told us not to eat that because the day that we do, what did she say? Do you remember what, what she added to that, that? Because I can't remember at the moment, and I'm hoping you do. No, thank you. But that helped me to jog my memory. This is what she said. We're not supposed to eat it, and we're not supposed to even touch it. Did God say not to touch it? You were way off. But the fact that we just had that little dialogue, like, totally helped me. Thank you. Okay? So, so here's what, what, what happened. She adds to. She adds to. God. She changes God. She changes God and then adds to God's law something else that God did not say. The devil has no new tricks. He's been doing the same thing for a very long time, which means that he's really good at it. He just repackages it in a different way. When Saul attacked the Amalekites, he had direct orders from the Lord, but he decided to go his own way and to do it his way. And Samuel says this to Saul later on, has the Lord as great has the Lord has great delight in burnt offering and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than that the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as the iniquity and idolatry. Idolatry, number one, is changing God, and number two, it is going against God's way. It's going against God's way. And that's what Saul did. It is a refusal to obey the Lord, and it is, a, it is an accepting of obeying self instead of the Lord. It's declaring yourself to sit upon the throne and therefore falling into idolatry. 
If you move on through our text, we've only gone through one verse, but I was going to do the whole chapter. Verse 15, it says, I speak as to wise men. Judge for yourselves what I say. The trend, like the NLT says, you're reasonable people. Like you're reasonable people, you're smart. You need to decide if what I'm saying is true. So Paul can tell you this, and I can tell you this, and everyone you know can tell you this, and tell you this to be true. But you're reasonable in the sense that you make up your own mind and you make your own decisions. And Paul says, you need to weigh this out, work this through. He doesn't even say, this is it. You do this or that's out, or, or we're done here. He says, you're a reasonable person. Think about this for a second. Use all of the Old Testament pictures. Use my life as an example. He says, look at all of these things and reason through it. And you see for yourself if I'm not telling the truth. Because what he's going to move into is this idea of mingling ourselves with sin as well as the Lord. And what happens is there is a discontentment that strikes every person who tries to walk with both feet on either side of the line. There is a discontentment in that you have too much of the world to enjoy Jesus fully. And you have too much of Jesus to enjoy the world fully. And so you're equally miserable in your life. And he uses this idea of drinking of the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. But before we get there, why should we run away from this? He's already told us in chapter 6 that we're to flee fornication. Although the idols that, that these people were worshiping, they weren't real in the sense that there was a God, Bacchus, behind it. But what he says is that that God's not real, but the devil is real. We do know that demons and the devil are, they are real. And so he says, why would we commingle our life with something like that? Paul is again enforcing the doctrine of separation to sin. If you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, it says this. I hope that my stupidity encourages you. Okay, cool. Like some of you are like, yeah, absolutely. All right on. Someday I'll share my testimony. It takes like five minutes. <laughs> I'm not the smartest dude in the world. So look what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. It says, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness and what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what a part has a believer with the unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God, as God has said. I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Therefore, verse 1 of chapter 7, Having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. What is Paul saying? To those who are claiming this liberty and this freedom to be able to go into the temple and be able to eat this stuff, and they're like, hey man, 
I can do whatever I want, whenever I want. Paul says, you have to understand something. Number one, we always want to choose fellowship over freedom. If your sin and your, or sorry, excuse me, if your liberty is causing someone to sin, it is no longer a liberty for you. That's not for you. And he says, if, if that's what it is, it's just some right that you claim, but it's actually drawing people back into the world, and it's not drawing them closer to Jesus, then that's not a liberty. That's anarchy. That's not freedom. Ultimately, total freedom becomes anarchy. 2020 is a great example of total freedom resulting in complete anarchy on our coast. Our whole, like our whole side of the coast, Washington down was this place of freedom where cops stepped back and just said, we got no control and people went nuts to the point where the people set up barricades and blockades around these, this place and says, this is its own town. Like we don't need anything from anyone else. And then they start shooting people and they start, want, they want people to come back in. You know what that is? It's a demand for freedom that becomes anarchy because man cannot handle total freedom. Freedom is best enjoyed within the boundary in which God has set. It's part of like what sin has done to us. I don't know about you, if, like, if, if tonight someone handed you like three G's and they're like, do whatever you want. How many of you could handle that? I couldn't. <laughs> like, no. <laughs> or someone just said like, tonight doesn't exist. Tomorrow, no one will know. You have freedom. Like, and we just, <laughs> we set the world on fire. Like, that's what we do. Moving on. Back to our text. This took a weird turn, so we're going to close. Paul later says in verse 16, he's going to use communion to illustrate his point. He says, sorry. That went weird. Um, he says, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of, of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? What, I am what am I saying then? That an idol is anything? Or what is offered to idols is anything? Rather that the things which Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and the, day, and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? He uses this picture of communion. And last week we took communion. And, and what's happening is, as we take it all together, which we did, we took the bread together. Some of you jumped the gun, but that's okay. But we took it together, right? Took the bread. We took the cup at the same time. And what that is is a unifying sense as we all gather around spiritually. Now, this does not turn into the literal body or the literal blood of Jesus Christ as we ingest it. That is not seen in scripture. That's not what that's about. When Paul talks about this communion that happens and what this fellowship that takes place, he says that it's a coming together and gathering around the body of Christ and the blood of Jesus. There is a unifying effect that comes from doing communion together. And this is why we're told to do that. 
Whether you sit around the table with friends and you're having a meal and you take communion together there, there's a unifying effect around the body of Christ. Spiritually, something is taking place that is beyond something that we'll understand here on earth, I believe. But there is. There's a real sense of unity around the fact that this is what has saved me personally and this is the, the work and this is the salvation that the world needs. That any man can be saved because of this, right? He uses this idea that as we unify around that and that together we're coming together unifying under the blood of Jesus, that when part of the body unites itself to that of the, of the things and the works of evil, that affects the body. He says late earlier in the text, as, as we saw in chapter 6, he talks about glorifying God in the body. He says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Meaning we're all connected to Christ. And because we're all connected through Christ, he says, shall I then take the members of Christ and make the members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know? That he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her. He says, but he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Jesus later said that you cannot have two heads. Meaning that you cannot serve two masters. Either you will love the one or you will hate the other. And so there's this duality in the church. And he says there's a call, a separation from the things of sin and the things of darkness. And we join united together under the banner of Jesus Christ. And so there's a call, he says, to those of you that are just dabbling in this stuff, in liberty, and like, I have freedom in Christ, and I'm, a man, I'm an American, and you do whatever you want. Know that it doesn't just affect you. It affects every single Christian. Because the Bible tells us that we're united in Christ. He says, early memory talks about bread and lumps, and he's like, purge out the old leaven. Like, get rid of it. Become. You are now a new lump, unified under Christ. Jesus has made you new through the purging of sin. So why would we go back, he says? Like, why would we join to this? Why would we fellowship with this? And he uses these two, like, drastic things, like demons and God. And we're like, yeah, I would never go to the demon side. But do we not understand that who the power of the prince of the air is? It's the devil. And there's so many things that, I don't know about you, I'm just going to speak for myself, that I rationalize as okay because I have liberty in Christ and I'm actually dabbling in the things that the devil is behind. All the while, like, it doesn't matter. It's no big deal. Like, I'm saved. I've been walking with God for, like, a long time. I got baptized when I was 7 and 9 and 12 and 14. So I'm probably fine. Remember, remember what Paul said earlier in this chapter. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. That is the exhortation. Flee idolatry. And you're like, I'm not in idolatry. He says, take stock of your life. And what's so rad, okay, yeah, that's a heavy rebuke. And you're like, demons. <laughs> know this that God's grace is much more powerful and extended far beyond any sin that you could commit that you're thinking man I'm so far down in the depths there is no way I'm coming back do you understand that God's grace extends to you no matter where you are 
Do you remember the story of, I think it was last week when these, all, all these Israeli people are in, in numbers are getting bit by snakes. <laughs> Zoe knows. She was there. It was painful. So these, these snakes are biting Israel. And remember, God tells Moses, I want you to construct a bronze serpent, and I want you to put it on a pole. And anyone who looks at this pole will be saved. Like that, you won't die of snake bites. Now, 99% of snake bites are not cured by you looking at something. It's not, not cured by you looking at the snake bite kit and you're like, don't need it. <laughs> Looked at the instructions. Like, you're probably going to die. That's not what happens. Oh, snakes, they're such horrible, horrible creatures. And even just talking about them right now, I feel like they're on me. Like, are they on me? I feel like they're on me. Uh, uh. Those of you who are, like, freaked out of spiders, like, I don't get you. You step on them. It's not a big deal. Snakes move without arms or legs. Like, is there anything more satanic than that? Sharks, you're right, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Those also are horrible. Now I'm forgetting where I was. Oh, okay, so they hoist this thing up on the pole, right? Now, the instructions that, that Moses was given, that if anyone is bit, he has to look at the pole. He didn't say how close you had to be to it. He didn't say in which direction you have to look from it. He didn't say what mountain you have to climb before you look at it. There was no other instructions other than just look in that direction. And as you look in that direction, you'll be saved. It's a picture of the grace of God. It doesn't matter how far away you are. It doesn't matter what you've committed. It doesn't matter how many times you've been bitten. Guess what? If you'll look, you'll be saved. It's a picture of the grace of God. That all God does is give us some kind of human responsibility. God has done all the work. Here's the pole. Jesus upon it. Look to it and you shall be saved doesn't matter where you've gone, where you've been, how far you've gone, Christ can restore you. And this is what Jesus is saying under, or Jesus, this is what Paul is saying through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that if you've experienced this kind of salvation, right, this is what has taken place in our lives. Christ has saved us from, from the depths of our sin. He has saved us from sin. He has saved us from death. He has saved us from hell. If that is your reality, then why would we continue to go back and join ourselves to the things that Satan is behind? He says, you wouldn't do that. He says, so why are we doing it? Separate yourself. Come out from there. Leave that behind. Forsake that. Continue to be joined unto Jesus. Forsaking the things of the past. Forsaking sin. Leaving it behind. Saying no. Being joined to Jesus. Walking as a new creation in Christ. That is what Paul says. Later he says, eat whatever is sold in the meat market. Asking no questions for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. He says, if you go to the meat market, don't ask where it comes from. Just eat it. If you're like, now is this, where is this from? Now who is this sacrifice to? And he's like, well, now I can't eat it. He says, don't worry about that. It's God's. He made it all. Eat it. Enjoy it. It's his creation. And then he later says, if you sit down at someone's table who's not a believer, and they're like, man, I just got back from Bacchus' temple. Check out this spread. And you're like, oh, this was sacrifice? Oh, you know what? I'm not going to eat it. And you're like, wait a second. Paul, you're like sending mixed messages here. He says, no, no, no. 
You're to be a witness to this person that you're leaving those things behind. And you worship the true and living God. So there are times, listen, we need to discern. Like Paul is saying this in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he's saying there are times where we need the gifting of the Holy Spirit to discern where to go, who to connect ourselves to, what to engage in. And that's why we need to walk in the Spirit every single day. And we're going to get to, after this whole head coverings thing, we're going to get to the gifts of the Holy Spirit, which I'm really excited about. We're going to do a whole series on just who the Holy Spirit is and what the gifts and empowering of the Holy Spirit is. Like for two years. No, I'm just kidding. But we're going to go through chapter 12 slowly. So buckle up. No, it's going to be exciting. That's why Paul says he's going to later preface, he's prefacing this as he leads into chapter 12. Is like, listen, this is why we need the Holy Spirit. Like I'm saying, we're saying this, like we need to join ourselves in Christ. Listen, he's prefacing this by saying, I can't do that without the Holy Spirit. Like, I, I don't have the power to say no to sin apart from the power that comes from the Holy Spirit. So, God's not asking you to do this by yourself, on your own. Like, hey, suck it up, be a man, say no. That's not the voice of God. That's the voice of my dad. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, but for real. Um, what is God saying? He's saying, hey, I have provided for you power in order to overcome temptation. There is a power that is available to us that we have been given because Jesus ascended into heaven. He gave us his Holy Spirit. That it's accessible. I don't want to just teach the whole thing. It's accessible by simply asking if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. You get to just ask for it. So, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word tonight and the opportunity to, to worship you, to sing to you. God, we're reminded that you are a God who um, um, we didn't come up with or imagine ourselves. But Lord, you have revealed yourself to us through your word. And so God, we want to be a people that, that know who you are. And, and Lord, we're so thankful, God, that you've allowed and given us a way for us to know you in a deeper way through your word and through the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life. So God, we pray, would you draw near to us as we draw near to you? Lord, whatever things that we've, we've joined ourselves to that is not good, and we know that it's, it's pulling us away from you, Lord, we want to... We want to get rid of that stuff tonight. We want to give it over to you. We want to be joined to you. I know I'll speak for myself. I want to be closer to you. I want to be done with, with more of my flesh. And so, Jesus, we pray that you would draw us close as we close in worship tonight. Jesus, would you visit us with your spirit? Move among us, God. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't we all stand together?